1 John 3, 16 through 18. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the living word, your precious son, Jesus. We thank you for the written word, the Bibles that are sitting open in our laps we thank you for your, your greatness and your goodness and your, your willing to not remain in heaven cut off from us, separated from us, but instead you've seen fit to communicate to us through your word. Help us this morning, Father, as we open your word, as we dig into these passages, into this truth, that you would open it to us, open our hearts. Lord, for your congregation gathered here, Lord, each person, would you open their heart Open their ears. Help them to hear and understand what you have for them. Lord, if there's anyone in the congregation who does not know you, we pray that you would take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they may hear, that they may see, that they may taste and know that you are good. Father, we love you this morning. and I pray as well for myself as I continue to, to preach and talk to these people this morning that you would take away my pride. Lord, help me to only be concerned about what you think of me, not what these people think of me. Help me to be transparent. Lord, help them to see through me to your blessed son, Jesus. Lord, help us all this morning to go away from this time together in your word, more transformed to be changed in the image of your blessed son, Jesus. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, just a, <clears throat> just a reminder, this is the quiz portion of our sermon Okay, this is a book. This is a book, and this is the this is a book. We appreciate Joseph Hellerman and the research and the benefit that he uh, has been to us by helping us to understand the first century uh, context to help help us understand what it means to be a family in that uh, in that situation in that context. But as believers that this is the true Word of God, we want to always remember that this is the test. This is our standard, the Word of God, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so as we continue in this study, we are going to be Bereans, Right? We're going to be Bereans. And it doesn't matter if we're studying a book. There's really no difference, really, in a book or a sermon, right? Books and sermons are both things that someone has 
poured their heart into and written down and given to you. A sermon is one is a spoken book in, sm- in smaller sections, okay? And so as we, as we work through these issues, no matter who is standing here at this pulpit, we must go back to the Scriptures to check and see if it's true, if it's right, right? We're going to be noble like the Bereans. So with that said, let's get into our message then. Last week, Pastor Sanchez talked to us about one of our problems, really our big problem as Americans. And our problem is that we are radical individualist. We're radical individualist. If you're like me, and you probably are, uh, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. I remember the first time I voted when I was 18. There was a song on the radio at that time, and it was, I'm proud to be an American. Remember that? Lee Greenwood, right? I mean, standing, you know, in front of a big flag, you know, I'm proud to be an American, right? Right? I'm pr- we're proud. I am proud. And uh, I'm also proud to be a Texan as well. <laughs> and uh, I should leave my, 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 uh, my foreign... Uh, I, I'm now a Californian as well, I guess. I need to give it up, don't I? <laughs> I need to give it up and, and be part of my new homeland. But yes, we can be proud. We can be proud people, individualist, proud of who we are, my way or the highway. It's all about me, right? As we are raising our son, I tell you, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, when you're five years old, you believe the world revolves around you, don't you? And some of us, when we're 46 years old, still believe the world revolves around us, right? So we're radical individualists. What is this? Well, this is the belief that our own dreams, our goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, to which we belong. Well, against this uh, prevailing modern American reality of radical individualism, we have the collectivist view of reality, the collectivist view of reality. And Hellerman in his first chapter uh, says this. He says, we are individualist. Our personal goals and individual satisfaction take first priority when we make critical life decisions. But the peoples of the ancient world exhibit what cultural anthropologists call a collectivist view of reality or a strong group society. What this means is that for the people in the world of the New Testament, the welfare of the groups to which they belong took priority over their own individual happiness and relational satisfaction. President John F. Kennedy captivated the audience at his 1961 presidential inauguration when he asked this or said this. He said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. To the people in the New Testament world, President Kennedy's exhortation, ask what you can do for your country, would have served as more than an an, an inspiring challenge. It would have represented an accurate description of daily life. People in the ancient world automatically assumed that the groups to which they belonged took priority over their lives as individuals. This was true whether the group in view was their nation, family, synagogue, or church. So in this series, we're trying, uh, we're, we're attempting to understand how those in the New Testament world would even perceive the word family or the concept of family. This is the historical, grammatical 
uh, way of interpreting Scripture. We need to understand not just what does it mean to me as I read it right now, but what did it mean to Paul as he himself in the first century would even pin these words family or write the word brother or sister. We're, there's a lot of separation now between even the way I might view my brother now and, and Paul might view a natural brother there. And so we're getting to the heart of the metaphor of family and brother, okay, or sister. In a strong group society then, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. Correspondingly, he or she perceives other persons primarily in terms of the groups to which they belong. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member, and it may use objects in the environment, other groups or people in the society and the members of the group itself to facilitate group-oriented goals and objectives. So the collectivist view of reality demonstrates that the group comes first. The group comes first. Let's look at some examples of that from the first century. The first person we look at is Josephus. Okay? Josephus was a first century historian. He was a Jewish historian who wrote during the, during the time of the sacking of Jerusalem by Rome. Rome surrounded Jerusalem and was coming against them and Josephus uh, was writing his histories during that time. And, and listen to what he says as he tried to persuade his own people to, to, um, to change their minds about some situations there. He says this. He says, I know that I have a mother, a wife, a not ennoble family, and an ancient and illustrious house involved in these perils. And maybe you think that it is on their account that my advice is offered. Slay them. Take my blood as the price of your own salvation. I too am prepared to die if my death will lead to you learning wisdom. Take my blood, Josephus says, as the price of your own salvation. So Josephus, in true collectivist fashion, was willing to die if that is what it took for the Jewish rebels to wise up and surrender to, to, to Rome. He was ready to sacrifice his life for the welfare of his group, the Jewish nation. In the New Testament, we see this also with, with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul powerfully repre represents this same view as his heart breaks for his own people in Romans 9.3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen in the flesh. What is Paul saying? He's saying that he's willing to be cut off from Messiah. He's willing to be cut off from Christ to be accursed. He's really, I mean, in our language, he'd be saying, I'm willing to go to hell for my brothers to come to Christ. I would go to hell if they could go to heaven. That's a pretty powerful sentiment, isn't it? I remember when I was in high school... My best friend in high school was named John Villarreal. Now, that was what we called him in Texas. If he was here, we would call him John Villarreal, okay? But uh, John Villarreal was my, one of my best friends in high school. He was the star pitcher of the uh, Greenville, Texas Lions, okay, our high school uh, baseball team. And my friend was a Christian. And I remember one night him being at my house uh, sleeping over, and we were probably about 17 at that time, and we were staying up late and talking to each other. 
You see, John had become a believer as a young man, probably in junior high, and his parents were not Christians. And as we were talking that night, I remember him dramatically holding up his arm, his pitching arm, and saying, Kevin, I would let someone cut off my arm if my parents would come to Christ. If my parents would come to Christ. Now, you've got to hear the heart of a young high school athlete whose identity is wrapped up in his ability to pitch a baseball. And him saying, his heart breaking and saying, I'd be willing to, to give up my identity, to give up who I am as a young man if my parents would come to Christ. The New Testament community of believers also held this same kind of sentiment. Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35 says this about this New Testament community of believers. We have Pentecost happens, the church is formed then. And then in Acts it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see what they're doing here? No one, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? No one has any need among them. There was not a needy person among them. It says that no one believed that anything belonged to himself. Everyone brought these things and they, they voluntarily lay them at the apostles' feet to supply the needs of all those who are among them. Now, we aren't committed to the group or family just for the sake of the group alone. Okay, hear me. We're not committed to the group or to a family just for the sake of the group alone. If we take the, 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 the benefit of the group or the good of the group over the individual and we take Christ out of that, we take Christ out of that, we take Christianity out of that, what you're left with is communism. Communism is basically a Christian heresy that takes, it takes the idea of Christianity, this idea right here in Acts chapter 4 of a community being all together and sharing their, 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 their wealth together, it takes that and it, and it extracts Christ, it extracts Christianity out of it and you're left with communism. But, but we're not proposing that and we're not, we're not doing that. We must keep Jesus in the center of all this because you see, our ultimate example of putting family first is our Savior. He is the example of what we are to do. You see, Jesus, Jesus hasn't asked His people, His family, to do anything that He didn't do Himself. He doesn't ask us as a, as a true, powerful, and good leader. A good leader never asks you to do something that He's not willing to do Himself or has, hasn't already done. So we turn now to 1 John 3, 16 through 18 to look at our Savior Christ. Listen again. By this we know love. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. 
Let's take this passage and, and pull it apart. At the beginning, 1 John 3, 16a says, By this we know love. By this we know love. This is love defined. Love defined. When we think about love, we all maybe have concepts or ideas. And, and, and in the media and pop culture all around us, there are books. If you go to the bookstore, any Barnes & Noble, and look, about, look at love or romance or marriage, there's going to be shelves and shelves of books about love. As I was writing this sermon, I started thinking back about, about songs that, that just came to my mind as I was a young man growing up in the 80s. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the songs that came to my mind was Song by Foreigner, right? And uh, uh, kids... That's a group that sung a long time ago. <clears throat> and uh, so anyway, they had these big, these big Frisbees. We used to put them on a thing and it spin around. You listen to it. And uh, anyway, so uh, they sang this song. Okay, and here's the, ly- here's the lyrics of, of this song. I want to know what love is. Okay, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I want to feel what love is. I know you can show me. Ah, woe, oh, ooh. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. It is interesting, actually, that Lou Graham, who wrote that song, came to faith later, right? And a brother came up on Friday night and said he saw him sing this, uh, like, I don't know, maybe a decade ago or so. And as a Christian now singing that, that I, you know, I know what love is. So, right, before Christ, I want to know what love is. After Christ, he sings, I know what love is. He now knows he has had, he's had love defined for him. And in the passage here, it says, by this we know love. Do you understand in, in, in today's society, this is a postmodern culture. Postmodern people don't believe we can know anything. We can't know anything. We can't know what love is. It's all just subjective. But no, the writer here, the Apostle John says, by this we know love. We know love. John Stott says in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, most people would have no difficulty in telling us what they think love is. They may know that whole books have been written with the purpose of distinguishing between different kinds of love. Nevertheless, they would claim that the meaning of love is self-evident. John would disagree with them, however. He dares to say that apart from the Christ, apart from Christ and his cross, the world would never have known what true love is. Of course, all human beings have experienced some degree and quality of love. But John is saying that only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint of of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of the world, namely the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. That is why if we're looking for a definition of love, we should look not in the dictionary, but to the cross. We're looking to see what love is. You want to know what love is? Look to the cross. You want to see what love is? Look to the cross. You want to feel what love is? Look to the cross. That's where love is defined. Moving on, 1 John three sixteen again. By this we know love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. This is love demonstrated. Love demonstrated. John Piper says, first of all, it involved the greatest possible sacrifice. Christ gave up his very life for us. Love takes so much joy in another person's welfare that it's willing 
eager, delighted to sacrifice one's own personal well-being for the good of the other person. Do you see that? He's saying that, that, that love takes joy in another person's welfare. So much joy is taken that they're willing and eager to lay down their lives. They're willing and eager to sacrifice. And Scripture says, doesn't it, for the joy set before him, Jesus, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. I mean, think of, husbands, when you sacrifice for your wife. Or think of, think of uh, I mean, if you, if, if you come home with uh, some flowers or something that's nice, and the door opens and you present them, and she says, oh, you shouldn't have. And you say, well, it's my duty, right? <laughs> She's going to take those flowers and whack you across the head. <laughs> it's, I'm just doing my duty, honey. No. When we love someone, when we love someone, there is joy in sacrifice. Part of the joy of loving is that's, that's what it is, to, to, to enjoy sacrificing. Not just to do our duty, but we find pleasure and happiness in the giving and self-sacrificial nature of Christianity. Um, I was reflecting one time on, on uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the great classic by John Bunyan. And in it, Pilgrim takes this pilgrimage, right, basically to the cross. He becomes a Christian. And at a point in his life, if you remember, there's, there's these, uh, if you have one of the illustrated texts, you see Pilgrim with this giant bundle, right, this gigantic backpack on his back that's, that's, that's uh, you know, crazily large, right? Un, 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 impossible, really, to actually care. But he's got this giant thing with all these straps, and he's got it tied to himself, and he's burdened down by this burden. And all through it, he trudges along, and finally, finally, he comes to the cross. And it's there that the things that bind this burden to his back snap, and the burden falls off his back. It's there at the cross that these burdens are taken away. And it made me think, and, 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 and because I was thinking about that one morning and praying, I, I, I came up with some lyrics of a poem as I was driving into work. And by the time I pretty much got to work, I pretty much had a poem. And this is what it, this is what it, it says as I reflect on that cross. The kindness of a king who alone would die for me. He took my sin upon himself to the cursed tree. Your father's wrath was mine that I alone should bear. A mercy so severe, you bore it all there. Suspended in between the earth and heaven's sky, in the shadow of your father, it is finished, was your cry. And now the debt is paid, the amazing deed is done, all my sins are vanquished by the death of God's own son. As I gaze upon your gift, I'm the one most blessed. You crushed this heart of stone and gave me one of flesh. The dead has been raised. This captive's been set free. Your costly gift of grace for one such as me. Blessed cross, blessed cross, blessed rather be the king who died for me. Romans 5, 8 says this, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here again, how does He demonstrate His love for us? Not when I got my act together. Not when I had everything figured out. 
Not when I got finished with that self-improvement course. Not because I was so cute. But while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. This is love demonstrated. Well, moving on. Again, back to our passage. By this we know love. Love defined, right? That he laid down his life for us. Love demonstrated. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is love duplicated. Love duplicated. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 5, 14 through 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you hear that? He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for ourselves. This is the essence of Christianity. Christ does it himself. He dies to himself. So that he can, so that he live, and, he, and he lives for us. We die to ourselves as well. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. You see, Christ's death. In this passage, it shows that Christ's death is duplicated in us. We've died in Christ. So that his life might be duplicated in us as well. So he dies for us that we may live. You see, Christ didn't come to make good men better. He didn't come to make good men better. He came to make dead men live. So then what happens after we die and we're raised again? When we're made alive, then as Christians, as born again people, what do we get to do? We get to die all over again. Now that we're living men, now that we're alive in Christ, we get to follow our Savior's example and die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. Love duplicated. Well, 1 John 3, 17 and 18 then shows us love indeed. Love indeed. He then gets very practical. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word, or talk, but in deed and in truth. Someone has said, if you behold a, brother, a need in your brother's life, and if you have resources to meet that need, you cannot stand idly by. If you do, you close your heart to your brother. If you have no pity in your heart for him, if you take no action to meet his need, the conclusion is obvious. God's love isn't in you. God's love to you cannot be bottled up or contained. It will inevitably flow out of you. And therefore, John can assert that if there is no outflow, it is evidence that there has been no inflow. Do you see what, 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 what John is saying here? Again, God loves us and his, his love has been poured into my heart. And because it's in there, I can't contain it. I can't keep it from going out. I'm like a, I'm a sieve. I'm, I've got all, I'm, 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 I'm holy. <laughs> okay. And, and the love pours out of me. I can't help it. And John is saying, but wait a minute. If that love is not pouring out of me, 
then maybe that love is not in me. Verse 17 brings Christian love down to the nitty-gritty of everyday life, does it not? It means that sharing our material resources with those in need is important, be it spiritual or physical needs. So how can we say that we're willing to lay down our lives for our brothers if we're unwilling to part with our money for their sake? Verse 17 means sharing our time with, with, with others as well. And many times that's what a person needs far more than he needs money. It takes time to be a friend. It takes time to listen. It takes, it, it takes time to talk. It takes time to relieve loneliness. And for many of us, that may be harder to do. It's harder to part with time than it might even be to part with money. That's where the heart of the battle is for me. That's where the heart of the battle is probably for you as well. But if we close our hearts with respect to time or money towards a brother or sister in need, then how can God's love be in us? When Hayden was first diagnosed and we were uh, going for the first transplant at UCLA, the doctors told us to be prepared to be there for three months. Okay, we're going to be in the hospital for three months. Now, when you're there uh, in UCLA at the hospital, obviously the patient's food is taken care of, right? But the, the parents who are staying the night there and spending all the time there, that, that's not taken care of. And so I was here teaching one night for HCMI, and the word of, obviously, we had said that what we're doing, we're getting ready to go away, and we're going to be, be uh, in the hospital for three months. And we, we took a coffee break, and I went out to get a cup of coffee. And when I came back, there was a basket, okay? And, the, and, 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 and in that basket, there were all these menus, okay? There were menus of all the restaurants, not all of the restaurants, most of the, all these restaurants in Westwood, the community that's right there by UCLA, by the hospital. And along with all these menus of all these restaurants were, were restaurant gift cards, a little Chinese takeout little thing, right, full of gift cards, well, we were very thankful. And as I went home that night and shared this with Linda, we're going through all these menus and we start counting up these restaurant gift cards. There was $1,200 worth of gift cards in this <laughs> little box, right? I still haven't lost all the weight that I gained that three months <laughs> eating out, right? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But do you realize how much stress was lifted from Linda and I that we, I didn't have to think about where that money was going to come from, how I was going to, to how, what we're going to do, what to eat. It was simply, it became a joy, right? Each night to just get out our little thing and go through all these menus. You want to eat it? You want to eat here? You want to eat here, 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 right? Walk out to, you know, down into Westwood and the little village there and get some food and come back. What a blessing. Also at that same time, somehow it got out that Pastor Kevin loves Diet Coke. Okay? Don't email me about how bad Diet Coke is. All right? My assistant's been on me, that, on, on, on me about that for quite some time. But I'm going to go with Jesus on this. He says, it's not that what goes in a man that makes him bad. It's what comes out, okay? So I understand. I like Diet Coke. And at that same time, when I was walking across the auditorium one morning before we went into the hospital, and I see James Tibbles, one of our, our, our godly stewards here. He was walking along. He's got a dolly. And it's got cases of Diet Coke on it, right? And I'm walking this way, and he's walking that way. And I, I kind of see him, and he, and he says, uh, he says uh, this is for you, right? And I couldn't help. I actually, I actually began to weep. I started crying. <laughs> because the love that was being poured out for me, and I'm sure James thought, What's, what did I say? <laughs> it's just Diet Coke. 
but that, but that, but that someone here would love me in these little trivial ways meant so much to me that truly this is my family. Truly, this is my family. Brothers and sisters, the only reason to put family first is that Jesus did it himself. The only reason to put family first is because Jesus did it himself. And we are now adopted. We are adopted into the family of God. And we just want to be like our big brother, Christ. I just want to be like my big brother, I just want to follow him. Let's just be like Jesus. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. Again and again, we must say thank you that you have saved us, that you have saved us, that you have rescued us from our sin, from the wrath of the Father, that we have not received what we ought to receive, that you are merciful to us. So again, we say thank you. Lord, there may be those in the congregation now who have yet to receive this love, whose hearts uh, are still hardened. We ask, Lord, that you would grant them repentance, that you would make clear to them that they too have sinned. They have broken your law. They have not put you first They have idols in their hearts. Lord, turn their hearts toward you so they too may experience love, joy, peace, all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this day. We hope that you've enjoyed, we hope that you've enjoyed, Lord, our praises to you and will continue to do so as we enjoy praising you. We love you today, Lord, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.